Before Christ, we were enslaved to sin. Now, verse 6, we are no longer in slavery. In fact, we are free from the bondage. Verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. Paul's very first recorded sermon, he, he proclaimed Christ as the one who frees from all things. Acts 13, I think it's 39. He frees from all things which the law of Moses could never free us from. Religion doesn't free people. Religion puts them under more rules. But relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, frees us. It frees us. And we are free then, look at the end of verse 4, to walk in newness of life. Welcome to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today, we continue on our study of the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part two of the message titled, Does Grace Promote Sin? We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. You'll see that just about everyone will mention justification in chapters 3 through 5 and sanctification in 6 through 8. Or they'll make the break at 5.11. And uh, that's because I think 12 through 21 of chapter 5, the one we looked at last time, speaks of both, really. It, it partakes of both truths as he speaks of Adams representing the race and then Christ representing the new race. And so just think in terms of three through five and then six through eight, and let me uh, give you a few thoughts that might prove helpful. In chapters three through five, as he's speaking of justification, the great emphasis is substitution. Christ died in my place. In chapter six and following now, the great emphasis is not going to be substitution, but identification. I was identified with Christ when He was dead, buried, and raised again. Christ died for my sins, chapter 3 through 5. Christ died to sin, chapter 6 through 8. Or I died with Christ, if you like. Christ died for sin, Christ died to sin, and I died with Him to sin. I am dead to sin. He paid the past penalty... Chapters 3 through 5, he delivers from the power of sin. Chapter 6 and following. Justified to be declared righteous. That imputes righteousness. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's not one we use every day, but the Bible teaches this idea of God reckoning it to our account, charging it to our account. So justification has the idea of righteousness imputed. It's charged to my account. Sanctification... On the other hand, chapter 6 and following has the idea of righteousness actually imparted to me. We are to live righteous lives, and he gives the basis for that in these chapters. Someone has said that the first uh, section is emphasized we're saved by his death. The next section, we are saved by his life. And I kind of like that, although you can't separate his death, burial, and resurrection. But yet you'll see it here in chapter 6, 7, and 8, that Christ died for me. Now he lives, and I'm identified with him in that new life. What should it look like? So kind of keep that in mind, and I think it's helpful in understanding the uh, argument of Romans. And, and when I say that, please understand that it isn't just a, a, an academic exercise. You really get a hold of this, and it changes your Christian life. It changes uh, your perspective, and hence 
uh, you'll bear much more fruit, you'll be much more happy, you'll be more fulfilled, you'll have much greater impact for Christ. Uh, Romans is so central to that. Now, having said that, remember back at the start. In fact, uh, look back there and just take a glance at chapter 1, verse 21. Even though man knew God, even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Man's mind has been messed up. His heart is messed up. He refused to honor God as God, and he has a perverted way of thinking ever since. His foolish heart was darkened. That will nowhere be more clearly seen then when you come to explain the gospel of grace and man's heart and head, heart and head, huh? Man's way of thinking, of, looking at things is all twisted. He says, oh, well then, shall we sin? Are we to continue in sin? The grace might increase. What a perversion to think that way. And yet so many people do. In Paul's day, there were people. Uh, Jude writes of them, ungodly persons, Jude 4, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The unregenerate mind, on the one hand, will say, oh, well, then I can just go out and sin. And there are people who operate that way. They would give lip service, they give profession to Christ, and then just go sin. They actually follow through on it. They haven't understood grace. There's a blindness still. And then there are others. There's a, the, other, the other thought, and you can kind of look at it both ways. There are others who cringe when you talk of grace. And I mean now church-going people, you know, religious people, Christians outwardly, it would seem. They go to a church, they hold to their religion. But when you present the gospel of grace in Christ, they kind of cringe and say, well, if, if people were to believe that way, they'd just sin then. Why is that? Because their heart of hearts is a legalist heart. They think the only thing that will kind of keep you clean is by trying to get to heaven on your works. Otherwise, what other motive would there be? <laughs> and, if I, and if you preach grace, why, you'll just turn in people into sinners because they'll just go out and sin. They have no understanding of what it means to live for Him, to love Him. You fall in love with Jesus Christ, and you don't want to go sin. Your desire is not, well, then, you mean, if I don't have to earn my way to heaven, I could just go out and sin. No, that's the way the non-Christian thinks. And if you're thinking that way, by the way, either, either types of thought, if you're kind of saying, that's great, that's license, or if you're thinking, well, if I were to believe that, why, what would keep me, uh, you know, on the straight and narrow kind of thing? There's a good chance you don't know Christ. If your heart still thinks that way, if your mind still thinks that way, there's a very good chance you really don't know him. Titus uh, speaks, well, I won't even give you that text. I'll just uh, move on. Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, now mark it in your mind, verse 11. Verse 11 is where he's going here. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's the first command in Romans. Do you think about that? We've been in it quite a while. We've read five and a half chapters. We're halfway into the sixth chapter before Paul has any command, and it is this. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It must be fairly important. It's the first one he gets to. Christianity isn't a bunch of commands. Christianity is what God has done for us, not what we do for Him. And to reduce Christianity, as is often the case in our popular culture, to the Ten Commandments or something like that, and if we could just get the Ten Rules posted on the school wall, well, everything would be fine. No, no. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't post the Ten Commandments. I'm simply saying that's not Christianity. Christianity is what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. And Paul argues for it for six chapters before he gets to the first command, and it isn't to do something. What is it? Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, having said that, let's go back to verse 2 and walk our way toward verse 11. May it never be. Are we to continue in sin? No way. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's his thesis right there. We have died to sin. How in the world, why in the world, for what reason would you even bring up living in sin when you died to sin, he says. That's his thesis. How in the world could we live in sin? Don't you know? Look at verse 3. Do you not know? That's a key, key word in the Christian life. And it's a key word in this section, knowing something. To know. Don't you know? Verse 3. Verse 6. Knowing this. Verse 9. Knowing that Christ... He wants us to know some things. And by the way, when he raises the question again, when he gives a second go at it, look at verse 15. Look at the section we'll look at next time. Verse 15. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. May it never be. Do you not know? He brings it up again. So it's important that we know these things. And we will know what he's saying here, not by reason. You can't reason your way to these things. We will know them not by experiencing them. That's why the Christian life is ultimately not just going by what you feel or experience or what kind of mood you could crank up at a meeting or something. Uh, We won't know these things by our feelings. We will know them by revelation. How do I know 
that I died to sin. Well, not by my feelings. I feel quite alive to sin, don't you? Not by my experience. I look at my life and I think, there's a long way to go. How do I know that I died to sin? God said so. I've got a certainty about it because it's based on revelation. In other words, we know these things by faith because faith is response to God's truth. It's response to God's revelation. He wants us to know. Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We've become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. We have been identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. When Christ died, I died. When Christ was crucified, we Christians were crucified. When Christ was buried, we were buried. When Christ arose, we arose. We have been identified with Christ, something that God did for us. When He died, we were identified with Him. We were co-crucified, co-buried, and co-resurrected. Now, the basis for justification, looking back, was what? The cross. The cross of Christ. What's the basis for sanctification? The cross. The cross of Christ. How will I have victory in my life? How will I see real separation from sin and a real lifestyle that pleases God by understanding what took place for me at Calvary and by understanding that I am identified with His resurrected Son, Jesus Christ? By the way, you look at verses 3 through 5 there, and he mentions the uh, baptism. In the, in the first century, people weren't as confused as we are about baptism. When you believed in Christ, you were baptized. And so the New Testament will refer to baptism as salvation in the sense that when people believed, the way they identified with Christ publicly was through baptism. Now, over the centuries, churches debated about what kind of baptism, how wet you should get, when, you know, and all the other details. And so a lot of people are confused enough about baptism that it's quite distant from their conversion. But in the New Testament, when you believed, you were baptized. And so he speaks of it here. He's not speaking of water baptism doing anything. Water baptism is a great picture, though, of the identification that takes place in a believer's life the moment they believe. They are dead, buried, and risen again. It's no longer I who live, Paul said, but Christ lives in me. And my life, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He says, don't you know these things? And he wants us to know these things. Verse 6, knowing this, he says it again, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. When you come to Christ, your old life was crucified with Christ. It's tremendous truth to remember. Your life before Christ, Christian, been nailed to a cross been crucified, okay, with the result, what? That our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, no more slavery to sin. Should we sin? No way. We've died to sin. 
We're no longer to be slaves to sin. It's not even appropriate. It's not fitting. Maybe before Christ, and in fact, no maybe about it, before Christ, you were in slavery to sin. Some of us more than others. Some of us were absolutely, it seemed, in bondage to some particular, you know, one of the big ones, some vice or something that really was destroying our life, ruining our marriage, whatever. But when you come to Christ, you're set free from that slavery. You say, well, I never was into really anything really gross, and I was just going to... But you, if you're a Christian, you know that before Christ, there was that propensity to sin. You'd try not to. You'd make reforms and resolutions, and you'd find yourself back failing, falling back into those same habit patterns and that same selfishness. And you knew you should put others first, but you ended up putting yourself first. And so I'm not talking here about the gravity of sin or how much outwardly it showed. The point is, before Christ, we were enslaved to sin. Now, verse 6, we are no longer in slavery. In fact, we are free from the bondage. Verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. Paul's very first recorded sermon, he, he proclaimed Christ as the one who frees from all things. Acts 13, I think it's 39. He frees from all things which the law of Moses could never free us from. Religion doesn't free people. Religion puts them under more rules. But relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ frees us. It frees us. And we are free then, look at the end of verse 4, to walk in newness of life. Oh, what a phrase. To walk in newness of a new lifestyle. To walk day by day, step by step, in newness of a whole new life. As I said, there's two good reasons to come to Christ. One, he'll set you free from the penalty of sin for eternity. And two, he'll set you free from the bondage of sin right here and now in time and space. And you can walk a new life. You say, I've tried, I've tried. Yeah, I know. That's just it. You can't. But you come to Christ and your old self is identified with Christ, dead, buried, and you have a new life. And you can make new beginnings and new starts and whole new perspective. And the basis for it all is understanding what took place. And then he reiterates it in verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. But now watch this. He moves the emphasis as, as he reiterates it here in 8, 9, and 10 from death to life. He, he said, you died with Christ, you were buried, now you live. And he reemphasizes it. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. We have life. We live not to sin, but to God. To God, just like Christ lives to God. We're identified with a resurrected Savior. Christ arose, never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. You have arisen, Christian. Don't you know this, he says, as he writes our Romans and argues this point. Now, by the way, you'll never hear the New Testament say things that you often hear people say. You'll never hear the New Testament say, die to yourself. You'll never hear the New Testament say, you need to die to that sin. Now, you hear a lot of preachers say that, you know. 
you hear other Christians say, you got to just die to it. Why doesn't the Bible say that? We already are dead. That happened. Don't you know that? So it isn't around going around dying to things. No, we have died. We're new creatures. In, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Remember that. Know that, he says. Know that. You won't hear the New Testament say, crucify yourself. Get out there and crucify yourself. Why? You have been crucified with Christ. It's always past tense when it speaks of these things. It's not die to this and crucify yourself to that or what. No, these things have been accomplished. And he wants us to know that they're an accomplished fact. And that leads him to, as I said, the first command of Romans is not to do something. Look at 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You say, but Scott, I wrestle with sin. I seem to be very much alive to sin. I'm not asking you to base this reckoning or this considering on your experience. Paul isn't asking us to base these things on our track record. He's asking us to base our reckoning on God's Word. It is much more certain than if you've had a good season of not too much temptation or something and you think, well, maybe I am dead to sin. You are dead to sin, not because you've done well for the last few weeks, but because Jesus Christ died and you died with Him. Jesus Christ was buried and you were buried with Him. And Jesus Christ arose and you have resurrection life. Consider it to be so. Consider it to be so. That's the starting point for healthy Christianity. You shall know the truth. And the truth will liberate you. This is the truth. Don't take my word for it. This is God's word. He says, Christian, that you're a new creature. He says that your past is dead, buried, and that you're on resurrection ground. Take his word for it. Consider it to be so. It's the starting point for victory over sin. It's a starting point for a lifestyle, a daily walk, a walk in newness of life that brings glory to God. Now, Grace, God's grace does not promote sin. Grace does not lead to a lifestyle of sin. Preaching grace, proclaiming the cross of Christ, does not lead people to just go out and do what they want. And we better not preach it because, after all, we've got to stay to the strict and narrow, and we better tell them to don't, mention, don't say it too strongly. We better keep a little merit in there so that people, no, no, no. Grace does not promote sin. May it never be. Don't you know? And then he lays it all out for us. And he says, now you should know these things. Now consider them so. Consider them so. Now he's not done. And we're not done, but time is done. <laughs> so uh, we'll just pick it up and take a look at this again. But let me encourage you to mull these things over in your mind. Take God's word for it and consider it so. You've been listening to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, Does Grace Promote Sin? A message from our series in the Book of Romans. 
If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today, or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to downtownbible.org. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. We're thrilled to announce the publication of a new book written by Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It's called A Brief Exposition of Romans. It's a 266-page chapter-by-chapter commentary on Romans that we're sure will enhance your understanding of this critical book in the New Testament. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online booksellers. But during our study of Romans, we'd like to send you a copy as a thank you for a gift of any amount to the ministry of Downtown Bible. You can find us online at downtownbible.org or by mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. We'd love to put this valuable resource in your hands. Downtown Bible only remains on the air through the generous contributions of listeners like you. We'd like to ask you to prayerfully consider partnering with us on a regular basis to help us meet our day-to-day expenses. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. God's grace brings salvation. The moment you understand grace, you are saved. When you really respond to Jesus Christ and His grace, you are saved. And then immediately, it goes to work instructing us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously in this world. That's why... Sometimes uh, a brand new Christian were hesitant to call for a holy lifestyle. We say, well, they just trust the Lord. As soon as you and I come to, gra- come to God's grace in Christ, we are to start living accordingly. And it begins to teach us that. The Holy Spirit teaches us that from, from the inside out. The Holy Scripture teaches us that. And grace, the principle, teaches us that. Titus 2, verse 12. We're to know the truth. And so he says, don't you know you've been identified with Christ? You died with him. You were buried with him. You were raised again with him. Join us again next time as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part three of the message titled, Does Grace Promote Sin? Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.